0: So much older than, I'm younger than that now.
1: It's not an automatic, and it isn't always easy, but the second half of your life can be the best. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. And it turns out there are some things you can do right now to help make that happen. Arthur Brooks is about to
2: join us to tell us how. And not only is it not an automatic bill, I don't think it's ever an automatic. you got to work at it, folks. And there is someone else who's trying to make the second half of her life the best half. Valerie Bertinelli, you've heard about her. She'll be here in just a few minutes. She had it pretty rough over the past few years with her battles with weight and, of course, dealing with the death of her ex-husband, guitar great Eddie Van Halen. We'll talk to Valerie about that and find out what she loves about being in her 60s. Then, an unforgettable conversation with a former tennis player who was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease over a decade ago, who has not only found a way to fight back, but is headed for the National Senior Games to compete. Finally, Dr. Vonda Wright reminds us why life is not as much about quantity as it is about quality. Ordinary people, extraordinary lives, it's time for Growing Bolder.
1: Well, we hear it again time and time again on this program from celebrities, from athletes, even everyday people. And it's always a surprise to hear someone say that their older years are some of their best. How is that possible? Will that be true for you? I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. It's not automatic, and it's not always easy. But the second half of our lives can be quite fulfilling. Turns out there are some things we can do right now to help make that happen. Arthur Brooks just wrote a book about it. Brooks happens to be one of the most interesting guys on the planet. Social scientist, a columnist, a guy who studied poverty and ways to move people out of it. He's studied happiness. He's he's got a great documentary out. He's got a podcast And a dozen books in all, this one is called From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. Let's say hi to Arthur Brooks. How are you, Arthur?
3: I'm well. How are you, Bill? Great to be with you.
1: You know, I'm a big fan and really excited to have you here. There's so much that you do that, you know, from such an interesting and intellectual perspective, you take these big, big, big concepts and you make them simple in a very smart way. Uh, and first of all, I just wanted to congratulate you on that because I really, really like your work.
3: Thank you, Bill. I appreciate it a lot. You know, I'm a social scientist. And when I was getting my PhD, I thought to myself, you know, I could study widget manufacturing, or maybe I could study the human heart, which is more interesting. You know, the truth is the human heart is a little harder to study because we're complex individuals. You know, we're, 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 we're all kind of different in our own way but we're all the same in the things that we want. And so now I'm teaching happiness classes at Harvard university and they're oversubscribed because this is the thing that people want. And, and this is the book for the happiness book for the rest of us. This is the happiness book for, on the, the 401k of happiness. That's a seven year study about how we can all get happier as we get older. And I'm completely convinced because I'm living it myself that this really works. You don't have to leave your happiness up to chance.
1: You know, this is great. I want to ask a quick question about the title. It says Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose. You could have just said purpose. Why why deep?
3: Because we find that when people do the right thing, when they actually make the right investments, that the purpose in life is so much deeper as you get older. The understanding that you can get can be so much more profound. This is one of the reasons that you find that about half of individuals, they tend to get happier and happier after about age 60 all the way to death and the other half start to go back down again, the difference is purpose. The people who are on that upper branch are the ones who say, oh, I really am starting to understand. And the good news is you don't have to leave that up to chance at all. If you do what I have in this book, which are the seven habits of the happiest people who are older. And if you do these things, we can all have that deep purpose ahead of us.
1: Does that mean you want to hit some of those habits now?
3: Yeah, sure. I mean, it's like and the, the number one habit that I found is, And it really, this one hit me like a two by four across the chops is I noticed that I started seeing in the in the literature. But then when I started to interview subjects for this, for this, uh, for this book, that there's really two curves of success. And the key to getting happier as you get older is recognizing that your better success curve is the later one. Most people don't even know it exists. Most people, you know, they think, look, I go up and then I lose my skills and that's kind of it and all the good stuff is in the past. Well, it turns out there's this second success curve, not of raw smarts and hard work, but of wisdom and teaching that people start to get in their 50s and 60s. That's highest in your 70s and even your 80s. And I talk in the book in a detailed way about how to exploit that, how to get on it, how to cultivate it. And that's the big one is jumping from one success curve to the other. That's the most important skill. That people acquire if they're going to be happy as they get older.
1: Now, wait a minute. Isn't success all about getting a promotion, making more money? What, what is success at 70?
3: Yeah. Success at 70 is enjoying your life more than you ever did, is serving other people and having more love in your life. And one of the things that people need to do is to, is to migrate their passions from money, power, pleasure, fame, to faith, family, friendship, And work that truly does serve others because these are the source of our, our deep and enduring satisfaction. Now, easier said than done. You know, it takes a whole bunch of ideas and a a lot of introspection, but, but that's why I wrote the book. I didn't just like write a list and put it on the internet. I wrote the whole book because frankly, I wanted this strategic plan for the rest of my life. I didn't even intend to publish it. It was a seven year study as a social scientist into the nature of my own happiness. And it was in notebooks on my desk. And my wife said, you got to write that up. And I said, ah, Nobody wants to hear that. And it debuted at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. So I guess, I guess that's proof that my wife is always right.
1: Well, that's, that's probably a rule, second, your second rule for success is the wife is always right. But, uh, but look, that was a great point, though. We, we find that, man, if you wanted to write, you're a best-selling author. Writing about aging is generally not something a publisher would get excited about. They'd almost steer you to something else. What did you see in aging that you thought, man, this might hit a nerve with people?
3: Well, part of it is that we are aging, and everybody, you know, maybe we don't want to age, but we don't like the alternative, that's for sure. You know, not aging is worse than aging, that's for sure. And, you know, we have an aging nation of people that are kind of trying to leave their happiness up to chance. It's its craziness. I'll just, you know, hope for the best and live right and everything else. No, you can do things. You can, you can start your happiness 401k, no matter what age, 25, 45, 65, and remarkably change the odds of getting happier as you grow older. Now it's true that for the longest time publishers have not been so interested in this, but I have a great publisher at Portfolio Penguin. They're, they're, they're just they're they're really visionary about this stuff. They're looking at what our country needs and what we need as people. And the result is that we've created this book that, that people are buying like crazy because they want the secrets. And I did too. <laughs>
1: Well, still, I mean, the only thing you see about aging, the only thing people say about aging, you know, you go to buy a birthday card for a friend at the store and it'll talk about losing your car keys. Or we talk, we see aging as just a time of decline and illness and frailty and isolation and death. And here you come in talking about how to be satisfied, how to be happy, how to make it the second half of your life the best. Uh, but you're not like one of those self-help guys. You're, you're, a, you're a social scientist. This has got to be real if it's coming from you.
3: It should be. I mean, it's like, you know, Harvard professor does a seven year study and, and it better be good. That's all I can say, because, you know, we're, we try to do things that are absolutely correct at my university on this. And, and I'm so persuaded that I literally quit a CEO job on the basis of this research and, and came to do teaching so that I could be on my own second curve. It's a really important thing that, to, to, to recognize that there's so much that's in all of our hands that we can do to actually get happier, to bring more love in our lives, to lift other people up. But, but it doesn't happen by chance. It doesn't just you know mysteriously materialize in our lives. We actually have to know the skills. It's not enough to wish for it. You got to work for it. But the work is joyful.
1: Yeah. And you've got to believe that it can happen. And I think there's several schools of thought too. A lot of people sit around and say, well, society's not set up for that. So I'm going to wait for somebody else to change it for me. And there's another group that says, no, I'm going to make my own second half of life. So how, what do we do? How do we, how do we ignore these images of aging as just terrible and, and, and take it head on? Well, one of the things that we need to recognize, quite frankly, is
3: that one of the ways that we can save this country is having more old people in positions of leadership. Now, one, you know, I, I've done a lot of stuff, you know, studying Silicon Valley tech industries. And one of the biggest, they, they went from, you know, the most respected part of the entrepreneurial economy to one of the least respected in 15 years. How do you blow that? How do you blow that lead? You know, when I was a kid, I was a Seattle Mariners fan growing up in Seattle. They could blow a lead like that. But, you know, <laughs> not very many teams are that good, I have to say, at, at screwing up. What happened? And the answer is, There's too many young people. I mean, I love young people because they're on their first success curve, their ambition curve, but there's not enough people in the second success curve, which is the wisdom curve. You know, one of the things I talk about in this book is that, look, we're getting healthier. We're living longer. If you're 20 years old and you're in good health, you can expect to live to 90. No joke. That means at 70, you should be in your prime on your second curve, your wisdom curve. Every company in America needs more old people in the C-suite, more old people on marketing teams, more old people on product teams, people who've actually gotten their degree in the School of Hard Knocks that can help keep organizations from making dumb mistakes. I love the energy of young people, but it's only deployed properly when it's mixed with the wisdom of old people. So this is one of the key things. It's not just finding good jobs for old people. This is not an act of charity. This is an act of charity for America. That we need to deploy the wisdom that's actually floating around around us. And those of us who are, you know, I'm 57 and I'm planning to live for a bunch more years. I want to deploy my talents and my skills that that I've actually cultivated over the course of this study for good purpose. And I want other people to enjoy this book and understand that their best years and their happiest years are ahead.
1: All right, look, you got us fired up now. Nobody listening is disagreeing, but I'm afraid that after the interview, you know, we'll all go, yeah, that guy's right. And then we just kind of sit back and turn Matlock on and sit back on the couch and, you know, wait till the end. So what what do we do? What actionable items? What can I do right now in my mid-60s to take steps in the right direction?
3: Well, there's a lot of things. There's these seven practices. And I go through them one by one about how to cultivate your new skills to be sure but there are also things to be thinking about so for example we need as we get older to be spending a lot more time on our on our close relationships than we have in the past these things are not going to fix themselves and these things are not going to generate themselves so i have a whole section on how you know young people they have a lot of deal friends but as you get older you need real friends not deal friends one of the biggest problems that older people have is Even though they have a lot of people around them, they're quite lonely because they've lost their ability to make real friendships. So real friends, not deal friends. There's a spiritual walk that older people need to cultivate, whether they're traditionally religious or not. You know, the contemplation of more transcendental things plays into taps into the second curve. It literally works with the structure of the brain optimally. And I talk about actually how to do that with a meditation or prayer practice or simply reading the philosophical works of the great Stoic philosophers there's many ways to do that. It goes on and on. We need to confront our fears. Older people who are happier and more effective and more successful, they're not afraid of failure anymore. They're not afraid of social comparison anymore. And, but that doesn't happen by itself. I have a whole set of techniques and meditations that they, the oldest, happiest people that they engage in so that fear can be in their past, one step after another. This is a joyful job, but it's a real thing that each one of us can do.
1: And and I think one of the things I love about your work the most, whether you're talking about happiness, whether you're talking about poverty, whether you're talking about aging, you keep coming back to these same terms. You keep, you know, whether you're 90, whether you have cancer or even people who suffer dementia, we need to find ways to keep our dignity, not just keep our dignity, but offer dignity to others to feel useful and to to have hope in our lives.
3: Yeah, for sure. And it's one thing, one of the main reasons that people get very depressed when they get older, is that because they feel irrelevant. But it's not just enough to convince yourself that you're not irrelevant, to convince yourself that you're useful. You got to be useful. You have to be relevant. And this doesn't have to be fiction. If you get on to your second curve of strength, if you leave your fear behind, if you cultivate the sense of the transcendent, if you make real relationships, if if you actually get in touch with your weaknesses, not just your strengths, all of these techniques that the happiest people do you will find yourself getting more useful. It will be authentic. Nobody's going to feel sorry for you. They're going to say, yeah, I need grandpa. I need him here because I can't do my work without him. And, and look, this is, I'm not going to lie to you here. I mean, this country needs that. We have an aging population full of people with tremendous potential. If we can instantiate that potential in each one of us, make, start making the investments when we're younger to get that, the greatest years of America can be ahead. But the greatest years of America are not going to be in the hands of people who don't have this wisdom and don't have this experience. It's going to be, Bill, it's going to be you and me and a lot of other people in our age group that are going to, they're going to lead America into its greatest period.
1: It, this, is, this is great stuff. This is what we need to hear, and not just people that are 65 and over, but as you said, people who are 20, 30, 40, moving forward into life. And really, we are, you know, you don't want to keep age groups in silos either. This intergenerational stuff is magic.
3: Oh it's crazy. Yeah, no it's the most amazing one of the biggest mistakes that we've made in America is by putting everybody together by age. You know the first graders, the second graders, the college students, the graduate students. You know they have cohorts inside com- and inside companies that are all the same age. That's nuts. We lose the ability to learn from each other and get energy from each other. One of the reasons that we're having so much trouble in business today, especially in the tech industries, is because older people, I mean younger people don't even know older people. They don't even see older people. There's nobody older around to say, "You're about to step on a landmine figuratively. You're about to, you know make a, make a big mess here. I know this because I've done it 40 times." You know It's crazy that it, and by the way, life is just not as good when we don't have people in different age groups. You know I was giving a talk at a, at a company out in California. And they were asking me my views on, on the diversity problem because there just aren't enough people of color and women who are, you know, doing engineering, for example. I, I'm, it's a big problem for sure. But then I said, speaking of diversity, how many old people work here? And the guy's like, you mean over 30? Punk. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, and that's the diversity that we really, really need in this country.
1: Uh, this is the last question here. I, I can't – you're getting more and more fired up as we, go, as we go in this interview, and this is fantastic. I want to ask you, are you surprised? I mean, did you think that this book, this topic was one that you were going to be so passionate about as, as you dove into it?
3: Well, part of it is when I was doing it, I was kind of thinking I need to do a little research for myself so that maybe I got a chance of getting a little happier because I wasn't very happy 10 years ago, quite frankly. I was just busting my pick all day long. I wasn't seeing my family very much. But not only did it actually give me the the ideas to improve my life, I'm much happier than I was 10 years ago, and I want to pass it on. I want to share these secrets. I feel like I, I dug up a pot of gold in my backyard. It's just the most amazing thing. And and, and not only that, just so other people can get happier, I want to help my country. I want America to continue to be a, a leader in the world, and we're not going to do it with anything less than, than all of our batteries wired together as people. So I'm pretty fired up because – I found, I think, the coolest thing in my whole career. Well,
1: you've really given us a gift, and you've done it again with this book. Great topic, great approach, and it's a topic that relates to every one of us. The book is From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. Thanks to Arthur Brooks for a great and inspiring conversation.
2: Next up, actress Valerie Bertinelli is going to talk about the death of Eddie Van Halen, coping with the ups and downs in life, and why now, in her 60s, she believes the best is yet to come. This is Growing Bolder.
4: Growing Bolder provided by
2: Calibrate. People who can't lose weight are often focused on willpower instead of biology. The Calibrate Metabolic Reset combines GLP-1 medication, one-on-one video coaching, and a holistic curriculum to help members lose 15% of their body weight on average, and Calibrate guarantees results. More information at joincalibrate.com.
1: Let's talk for a few minutes about hard times, how to get through them. How do you bounce back from those things that happen to all of us, the ones that really shake you up in life? I'm Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder. Sometimes it it helps to hear how others get through, and that's why we think you're really going to like what our next guest has to say. It's been a rough few years for Valerie Bertinelli Man, pick an emotion, and she's been through it, and not just because of Eddie. She's got a new book out called Enough Already. Love the title. Learning to Love the Way I Am Today. Have you ever felt that way? Let's say hi to Valerie Burtonelli. Man, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. How are you?
4: Thanks so much for having me. Hi, I'm, I'm doing well this morning. You know, Valerie,
1: I, one of the cool things about you is you go where all of us want to, but we're kind of afraid to. You know, we all want to hide our vulnerabilities, and you always, especially with this book, you've you've published yours. T- tell us about deciding to do that.
4: Oh well, um, I guess I feel like you're only as sick as your secrets, and what are secrets anyway? I mean, secrets are something that we are ashamed of. So I don't want to feel shame in my life. Um, shame only suppresses joy, suppresses anything that can give me joy. Um, So I am am searching for joy in my life. I'm searching to be kinder to myself. And I'm on this journey. I'm hoping to bring people along with me. And I've, I've gotten some feedback about the book that I know I'm on the right path. So it's really helping me when I hear from people that they're like, oh my God, I felt that way too. And this is, I was told the lie that I'm unlovable if I'm fat or if I've gained weight. And it's not true. I'm lovable just as I am. And why should it matter what my weight is if i'm going through something why can't you love me as i'm you know going through it so i think it's 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 easier to be vulnerable and get to a better place than to carry around all this weight of emotion and and fear and shame that i just i don't want to have anymore it's it's not fun it's just not, not fun
5: well,
1: you know, one of the things that sets you apart is a lot of people do want to talk about this in your position, but you've got this credibility. I mean, we, you're, you're honest, you're sincere. We feel that and we really believe you. And, and, and one of the other things that we admire is instead of hiding your age, this is kind of an example, Val, you celebrate yours. We need to know how you do that. How do you see aging not as a detriment, but you look at it as more like an opportunity?
4: Well, it's better than the alternative, isn't it? <laughs> and the great thing about aging is you learn so much more. I feel like my brain just gets more and more filled up with information that I can use to make me make better choices, to make me do things that will help me more, to treat others with more kindness. The 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 more I learn, the better I can be. So, yeah, age is just a number I look at it as an opportunity to learn more. I think we're all here to learn, learn things, learn to be better people, learn to be kinder to one another and to ourselves. That's all I want. And if I can be um, someone who can hold other people's hands along the way, because when I do that, by, by teaching other people what I've already learned, I learn then even more. So I'm constantly filling myself up with knowledge as I'm also sharing my knowledge. And that, that's all I want. I just want to learn
1: well, well, let's go there a little bit because I mentioned off the top that you ha- have been through a lot. I mean, Eddie Van Halen's passing, a separation in your next marriage, taking care of your mom in her final years. You know, it's like grief and death and loss. These are, these are huge things that we all go through and we watch you do it with such class. And, and, and how has all this changed you, Valerie? What, what do we need to understand? What can we learn from what you've been through?
4: Um, That regrets aren't necessarily a bad thing. I'm. I. I don't. I don't agree with the phrase. I have a phrase. I have no regrets. It's made me who I am. Um, regrets are. Yes, they have made me who I am. But I. I would rather learn and not have the regrets. I. I. I, I regret not opening up my mouth more and, and asking my mom more questions. I regret like I say in the book, that I didn't hug Ed more when I could see that he wanted it. I regret all sorts of things. Um, I regret not telling people how I feel about them so that they know how much I absolutely love them because what if it's the last time I ever see them? I'm grateful that I was able to tell Ed I love him before he had his final stroke so that he knew those were the last words. You know, I love you, I'll see you tomorrow were the last words he heard from me. But there are so many other regrets that I have, and it's okay, but I'd rather not have them. I'd rather do things so that I don't have to have regrets, and if I can teach people how not to have them and to say the things that so they don't have to have them, then I'm here for that.
1: You know, I, I think one of the reasons that we all, you know, we sit here and we take in everything you say is because we've seen you. We've seen you have these amazing highs and we've seen you have these, these lows. So, so what, what happens? What do you do with your anger or your grief or when you don't like what you see on the scale and you feel yourself kind of slipping down that rabbit hole again? I
4: um, thankfully do not get on the scale any longer. Um, but sometimes what will send me down a path of self-loathing is seeing a picture of myself where I don't, where I'm not happy with that, where I am. And um, I will work my way out of it. I will, you know, pick my brain apart and say, okay, you know, what's going on? And then try to focus in on something positive, something I can be grateful for so that I don't wallow in self-loathing because that's not going to get me anywhere. It's not going to make me a better person. It's not going gr- to grow me into something better. It's just going to... Put me in a space where I'm not going to get anything productive done. So, and sometimes I will wallow in it, honestly, because I'm just too lazy to get out of it, and sometimes I need to have a good cry. Other times, most times, I will be able to just say, okay, we need to figure out what's going on, why is this affecting me so badly right now, and what can I do? to look somewhere else and focus on something else. Oh, my God, look at that cloud. Isn't that beautiful? Or, oh, look at Luna's tail. Look at how happy she is. She's wagging. I want to be as happy as Luna. How can I be as happy as Luna? Let's take her Luna for a while. Anything to focus something on gratitude and some kind of light. In every darkness, there is a pinpoint of light somewhere and focus on that.
1: And that's awesome. You've got such a great philosophy. And, you know, when we think of you, you we'll think back to one day at a time or whatever. But... All of the things you're going through now. I know you've got a pilot coming out with NBC. The Food Network thing is going great. You're as busy and looking forward in your 60s as anyone we've ever talked to here. It's
4: crazy. It's just crazy.
1: Are you surprised that this is one of the most fruitful and best parts of your life?
4: Absolutely shocked. Um, I could not have planned this out. I don't know how to plan these type of things out. I do what I want to do, what I, what I, what I hope to do, and then when, it, when it's successful, I'm super happy, and if it's not, I'll go on to the next thing. I started off by writing a cookbook in, I think it was 2012, and then took that to Food Network, and that was able to be successful, thank God, because I realized how much I missed cooking and food in my life because I had made it the enemy for so long. So I'm able to have that beautiful relationship with food again that I missed for so long. And I'm developing that love for food again that I didn't have for a long time and just finding that balance now. Um, I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful to, to be able to do a show in front of a live audience again. I'm, I'm a little scared. I haven't done it in a long time. So um, we do our first um, script reading today, so I'm very nervous. Um, but I'm so excited. I'm, I'm just so grateful. Every day, the first thing I say before I even open my eyes sometimes is thank you. Just thank you.
1: It's awesome. You know, more than an actor, more than an author, you know what you are? You are an inspiration. And the book is called Enough Already. It's empowering on so many levels. It's about turning a corner. It's about dealing with real life, just like we all have to. And the best thing is straight from the heart of Valerie Bertinelli. Val, thanks so much.
2: Coming up, Parkinson's disease can totally change your life. Find out what Andy Layton did to make that change turn out for the better. We'll talk to the 74-year-old as he prepares for the National Senior Games. This is Growing Bolder.
0: the And past fades away so fast. Like a dance in the night.
1: Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingboulder.com. Miss an episode of Growing Boulder Radio? Subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device. Details at growingboulder.com/podcasts. Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. You know, we've got a lot of people ask us about the podcast all the time. Mark, where where to find something truly inspiring that focuses on people who found ways to stay active in their later years that completely enhances their lives? Well, here's a recommendation. The podcast is called Fountain of Youth, and it is hosted by Mark.
2: And we're going to hear part of one right now. Yeah, I appreciate that, Bill. I'm having a lot of fun with it. Uh, and this one is about resilience. It's about taking whatever happens to us in stride and then making the best of it. Andy Layton is a guy who was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. He figured his days as a tennis player were over. And he was right, but he wasn't about to give up. He wasn't going to give up exercise or competition or activity. He found that he could play pickleball. And so at age 74, he is still loving life, something he wasn't sure would ever be possible again.
5: Uh, What happened was I just noticed a little pulsing in one of my hands, my right hand. And I had a feeling right then that it was Parkinson's, but I started going to neurologists. And I went to more than one. Actually, I went to four neurologists to make sure of the diagnosis because it can be tricky to diagnose. So that took a period of about six months. And then once we had the diagnosis, I went in to start learning about the disease and what I had control over and how I could manage this disease.
2: I know just a little bit, Andy, about what your life was like before the diagnosis, I know a good bit more about what it's like after the diagnosis. You have always been a positive guy, but 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 I have to imagine that this knocked you on your heels and that you did go through a period, as anyone would be expected to, when you were first diagnosed, where it, you didn't take it well. I mean, is that true? Did this knock you on your heels, and how did you get yourself back together in order to to capture the spirit that we know you for now?
5: Well, you know, Mark, it didn't knock me on my heels. It knocked me on another part of my anatomy. (laughs) But it did knock me down for probably about three or four weeks, because when you get this diagnosis, uh, it's just going to set you back a bit. And it takes a while to figure out, um, frankly, what to do about it. But I knew from uh, previous experience in my work as an organization development specialist that when change happens, you want to look at that change and see what part of it you can control and what part of it is out of your control. So the part that's out of your control, you can't really worry about. But the part that's within your control, you can do something about. And so I was told that the best thing I could do for Parkinson's is to slow the progression of the disease and to do that by exercising. And I was told that um, exercising not only is like medicine, exercise is medicine. So the question is, do you wanna go Go out an exercise or do you want to go to the drugstore and pick up a prescription? And I'd much rather exercise, so I tried to pick up my activity level as much as I could.
2: What a blessing you are to so many people, Andy, because, you know, as we all age, we you know, we fear the many different things that can impact us and affect us. And there are so many examples out there of people who are beaten by these things, who are beaten down by these things that, you know, for someone like you who can, you know, hear a neurologist, who can hear your doctor tell you, you know what, Andy, exercise, vigorous exercise, staying moving can can help you. To, to hear that is one thing, but but to actually dig down and, and, and to fight and to battle and to engage in that type of activity is something that not a lot of people do. So, you know, you're, you're showing a whole lot of people what is possible. You're not in a wheelchair. Tell us about your life now. Tell us about how active you are. Tell us about what you're able to do.
5: <laughs> well, um, my life is great right now. I'm not sure I could match some of your other guests in my level of activity, but I'm, I'm fairly active. I do rowing for about uh, 30 minutes, three or four days a week. I do running a couple, two or three miles a day for uh, two or three days out of the week. I'm playing pickleball fairly regularly, about four times a week for a couple hours. And other things, I go for walks and so on and so forth. I have a trainer that helps me a couple times a week with timing issues and balance issues that allows me to keep uh, my competitive level up with my colleagues who do not have Parkinson's. So... I've got a fair amount going on, I'd say. (laughs) Yeah,
2: balance issues, I I think, are, you know, one of the the common struggles that people with Parkinson's have. It's one of the common struggles that older adults have as well. And, you know, I'm guessing the footwork that you do, the balance that you have to have is something that would help anybody as they age, but particularly anybody that, that has Parkinson's.
5: Yeah, you know, Parkinson's and pickleball are almost exact opposites. They're trying to do different things. They're incompatible with each other. That's what I love about this. Parkinson's has four classic, what's called motor markers, things you can see. Those four things are tremor, which most people associate, you know, when they think of Parkinson's. There's also slowness of movement. The medical term is bradykinesia. Let's see, there's stiffness of joints. And then the fourth is And most significant is postural instability or falling, balance issues. If you have three out of the four of those, you've got Parkinson's. And I've got three out of four. I don't have balance issues yet, and I'm sort of fighting uh, against that. And pickleball helps me do that.
2: We're talking with Andy Layton, uh, a 74-year-old athlete, national senior Olympian, a senior games guy who doesn't just go to play, he goes to compete. He goes to get up on the podium and and, and get it done. Talk to us about the transition, Andy, from... From tennis to pickleball because a lot of older adults are making that anyway one of the cool things about pickleball i think is that for the most part it became popular with older adults and now it is increasingly popular with people of all ages and some of these younger age groups in pickleball are former national and world champions in handball and tennis. And, you know, it, it's a game that, that almost anybody can play. And for someone with your condition, it seems like it, the court got smaller. You don't have to move as much, ideally made for a guy who knows how to handle a racket that wants to keep moving. Am I right about that?
5: Yeah, you're right. It's, it's kind of kind of interesting. I'm a lifelong tennis player. I met my wife playing tennis. I was captain of my work tennis team in the Federal Tennis League and so on and so forth. But I found that pickleball is, frankly, a lot more fun than tennis because it's played on a drop-in basis. That is, a whole bunch of people just drop in at the courts, and you can play for 15, 20 minutes, or you can play for three or four hours, whatever you want. Whereas tennis is a smaller number of people, one other person or three other people, and you play for 90 minutes or two hours. It's pretty strictly reserved court time. And pickleball also has – you hit a lot more shots in pickleball – it's a much more intimate game in terms of proximity to your opponent. You're very close to your opponent, and that ends up being a good thing because there's a lot of laughter that goes on and hmm. hooting and hollering and pickleball. It just is because how close you are uh, to the opposition.
2: You mentioned, Andy, that you have a trainer. I, I know you also have a coach. You've got someone that teaches you, that works with you, that coaches you in pickleball, and, and I understand that uh, she actually lives with you.
5: That's right. You're very well informed, Mark. Yeah, my coach is my wife, Helen White. And what's so special about our relationship is that Helen is also a former tennis player. And Helen was the first girl to play on a boys high school tennis team up in our hometown of Syracuse, New York. And I was helping out coaching another boys team in the league. And that's how we met. And so Uh, Helen and I play a lot of mixed doubles tournaments and I was the teacher and she was the learner and now our, (laughs) whoops, our roles have reversed. I'm the learner and she's the teacher. So, uh, it's a tricky relationship and we're, we're doing pretty darn well at it. And we're looking forward to playing some mixed doubles in Florida in the big tournament coming up. Well, when you
2: do get down here, we will be there, Andy, and we're going to look for you. And, I, and I, we're not going to be the only ones that are going to be looking for Andy Layton because I, I see your shirt and you got Andy's Army on there. And there, there's actually an Andy's Army. These are people that show up to support Andy, people that I'm assuming were your friends initially, but it's now people who know of you, who are inspired by you. Tell us about Andy's Army and what it does for you.
5: Yeah, well, no offense, Mark, but you're probably old enough to remember Arnold Palmer and his legions of (laughs) fellows were called Arnie's Army. And so that's why I took the name Andy's Army. And we've got a group of people. It's called Pick a Ball Over Parkinson's, Andy's Army. They're a nationwide group that just basically wishes me well in all the tournaments. They follow my career, and I send out a little note to them from time to time, just letting them know what I'm up to. So uh, we've had a great time at some tournaments. Some people I've never even met come up to me and, you know, wish me well. They pray for me. They cheer for me. And that's something that's really, really important when you're facing something like Parkinson's that, frankly, you not face it alone. And I definitely do not face Parkinson's alone. It's wonderful to have this group supporting me.
2: You know, I, I think that's, of the many great points you've made so far, Andy, maybe the most important. As we get older in general, even people that are healthy, it's, our world tends to shrink if we don't put ourselves out there. And, you know, one study after another, folks, has proven that, you know, as we age, low socialization is more harmful to our health than than smoking or alcoholism or obesity. I mean, that's how important it is to have a support system. and And I would guess, Andy, that many people that are diagnosed with Parkinson's and and other diseases that, that, that seem to be more common with age, they, they withdraw even more than a normal healthy person, and it's almost impossible to fight these things alone. Andy's army is, is is a good thing for you.
5: It's terrific. There are local Parkinson's groups around the country who help Parkinson's patients to remain in the mainstream because the tendency is to back away. Because what Parkinson's does to you is it tries to take away Things like your voice, it softens your voice, it takes away your posture, makes you stoop over, it takes away your gait, the length of your step, it shortens that. And so in my case, I'm doing everything I can to combat those things. You know, when we're playing pickleball, some people know me and some people don't. I frankly don't care if they know I have Parkinson's or not. I'm just looking for competition. So that's, that's the way
2: it goes. <laughs> Man, what a great attitude Andy Layton has and a great reminder from him that whatever you face in life, and we all face something, folks, you never really have to face it alone. Of course, that was just a sample from our Fountain of Youth podcast about staying active in our later years. If you'd like to hear more of that podcast or any of the others in the series, check it out. The Fountain of Youth podcast will change everything you thought you knew about aging. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. When we come back, the doctor is in. Dr. Vonda Wright writes us a prescription for living in the moment. This is Growing Bolder.
1: growing Boulder magazine now with more information articles and photos than ever before this quarterly publication is unlike any other filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest more information at slash subscribe miss an episode of growing Boulder radio subscribe to our podcast and get it on your mobile device details at growingbollder.com slash podcasts
0: my guards did hard when abstract threats.
1: Well, as hard as you try, there is just no way around it. When it comes to life, the road is going to have its share of potholes. We can't always avoid them, but we can push past them with the right kind of attitude. Growing Boulder contributor Dr. Vonda Wright says that we do that by remembering that life is about quality, and that comes from learning how to truly live in the moment.
6: There are so many things we can do, whether we're talking about the five pillars of life or health that we can intervene with. There's now an entirely new uh, segment on uh, the new science of aging, where we're really figuring out what happens to ourselves and trying to prevent the aging process from progressing in an abnormally fast way. But I wanna clarify, I am not anti-aging. I have never been anti-aging because from the minute of our conception, When we are two cells, to the minute of our death, the most natural process that we experience as humans is aging. What's important to me as both an orthopedic surgeon, a scientist, a mother, a wife, a friend, is how we spend all that aging time. So I no longer say, let's think about how we live long and prosper. I say, Let's think about how we live more every moment and prosper.
1: Dr. Vonda Wright saying it's not about being anti-aging. That's an important designation, too. It's about living in the moment and finding the good wherever we are. A great thought and a great launch point to lead into our next segment, which is my favorite, On My Mind with Mark Middleton I, and, I, and the reason I like this is because even if it's things that we've thought about before, you help us think about things in a different way.
2: Well, you're going to like this one, Bill, because you've helped me think about it in a different way. And, and really what's on my mind today are are reunions in general. And I know you spoke at a high school reunion recently. And I'm thinking about it for a couple of reasons. Number one, I'm getting ready to fly to Los Angeles with uh, my wife this weekend for a reunion of sorts with my sister at my nephew's wedding. And both of our daughters are going to be there. And as you know, I didn't go to any reunions of any sort for decades. I did go to my 40th high school reunion. I went to my 50th high school reunion. I've been to reunions of some of the people we used to work with in local television. I've been to reunions for the people I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with. And, of course, we have individual reunions on and on and on. And... You know, I think the experience is different for everybody, and I think to a large extent you make it something that was good or something that was bad. A lot of us fear reunions. Tell me about your experience speaking at a reunion. What did you learn then?
1: It was interesting to be a fly on the wall at somebody else's. It was a 50th anniversary for a high school class, their 50th reunion, and you know what was really stood out in this reunion? It wasn't so much about what you thought of everybody or how much fun you had, but it's a true indication of how far you've come since then. We all think we're the same, the same person, but you go back and you realize that our journeys have taken us so many different places, and a big part of who we are is what happened with them. But, man, it's nothing compared to what happens after.
2: But, you know, I think for to some extent, Bill, that's why many people don't want to go to a reunion because they're not the person they used to be. They're not proud of the person they used to be. They don't want to be remembered as the person they used to be. And, and they don't know how to present the person that they are now. But, but how
1: cool to take who you were, right, a uh, high school senior, Bill and Mark, Go out into the world and gather all of these little gold nuggets and things you've learned about life and experienced. Bring them back to the people who were not just your friends, but your whole world, you know, and reconnect with them and find out what they've learned, what you've learned, how you've coped and how they coped. I loved the whole environment and and thought it was nothing but an opportunity for growth, for you know, for everybody.
2: Yeah, and especially, you know, if you're not an older adult that has, has become, you know, less open to to new experiences because some older adults do you know back in the day i think we were all pretty cliquish at least in high school and that was one of the favorite things for me about my high school reunions 40th and 50th is that you know the cliques no longer existed you paid attention to people that you didn't even talk to in high school you appreciated things about people that you never understood back then the weird strange quiet smart nerdy people are the coolest now
1: don't you love that's such a great point because it's not about who we were when you go to reunion it's who you are it's who you've become and it's sharing it's sharing all of those things with the people that were the closest to you in life folks that's growing boulder and this wraps up this edition we'll see you again next time the growing boulder radio show is a production of growing boulder llc all rights reserved this program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nanis. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula. And our most important team member, you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day.
0: Crimson flames tied through my ears, flowing high and mighty traps. Countless fire and flaming road, Using ideas as my map. Show A soldier stands out me into thinking I had something